Good evening, everyone. Welcome back. It's good to see everyone again. We haven't seen each other since January 25th, but uh, it's great to be back. Welcome to Stewart Observatory on this beautiful evening in Tucson, Arizona. Uh, welcome to the Stewart Observatory Public Evening Series, first started in 1922 by Professor Andrew Ellicott Douglas, and we've been offering lectures every year since then, free to the public. We also welcome those of you watching the podcast of this lecture, streaming at www.as.arizona.edu or via iTunes U. Welcome to those of you in Kansas City, for example, who will be watching this, I know. So, without further ado, before I introduce tonight's speaker, I want to let you know that the telescope will be open for viewing at the conclusion of tonight's lecture. It's the white building with the big white dome on top right next door. Also, if there are students in the audience who are here for an assignment, I am the person who will validate your assignment at the conclusion down here at this table. I'll stamp your notes to prove that you were here. You've seen this. In fact, let's uh, switch over to yours, Daniel. Uh, just hit laptop. We have two more lectures. What we've decided to do, something we've never done before, we're doing a mini-series within a series. So our last three lectures of the fall 2016, or spring 2016 semester will be on the same theme. Uh, and, and Daniel will tell you about it. It's EOS, Earth and Other Systems. It's a big research project that was just funded and has started here. And so in two weeks, our next lecture will build on this lecture. And then the lecture in four weeks will build on that one. So that idea. So with that in mind, oh, and also, if you haven't gotten on our mailing list and would like to get the Stewart Observatory newsletter, please make sure to give um, Kathy back there your email address on the way out. All right. Our speaker tonight, to kick things off, is the director of EOS Project. It's Professor Daniel Apai. Daniel is Hungarian, and he got his, it's like a master's degree in physics at uh, Saget in Hungary, or as we used to say in Germany, Ungarn. And then he uh, went to Germany and got his PhD at the Max Planck Institute for Astronomy in Heidelberg. Beautiful city if you've ever been to Heidelberg, right? Student prince. Uh, he then came here to Arizona as part of the NASA's astrobiology node. He took off to Baltimore to be at Space Telescope Science Institute for two years and then returned. Um, he is here in the Department of Astronomy, but I believe he also collaborates closely with our colleagues over at Lunar and Planetary Lab. Uh, he is into exoplanets, which is short for extrasolar planets. I never thought this would happen in my lifetime. Sure, in Star Trek, you just assume that there are planets orbiting other stars. And star, all our science fiction is based on that. And we just assumed it. We never had proof, right? It was only 20 years ago that we first had proof that actually there are planets orbiting other stars. And uh, Professor Apai is busy mapping extrasolar planet systems around other star systems. And today he's going to tell you about his brand new project and what it entails. So I give you Professor Daniel Apai. Thank you. Thank you, Tom. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for coming. Uh, I'm really excited to tell you about Project EOS, uh, which is a large project uh, we began last year, uh, funded by NASA. And uh, EOS is part of uh, Nexus. Uh, I will explain what Nexus is. It's one of those things where you realize how much NASA loves acronyms. Uh, Nexus uh, is a new program within NASA, and the goal of Nexus is to study extrasolar planetary systems uh, in a system-wide level. That means studying many different aspects together and exploring them as complex systems. Uh, the ultimate goal of this study is to explore life and the possibility of life and the properties of life uh, around other stars. So it's a very, very exciting goal, something that's um, driving many of the young scientists uh, and something that's quite easy to understand. Uh, and today I want to tell you more about our work, how we help NASA, why NASA selected us to work with them uh, on this project, 
and um, also give you a little bit of a context uh, for um, um, the scientific context for the problems and questions we are trying to solve. Uh, I want to point out, as, as Tom mentioned, that this uh, lecture is the first uh, in a series of three which are going to give you an overview of the various aspects uh, EOS uh, scientists are involved in. Um, as you will see, this is a large project. This is in size 20 to 30 times as large as a typical research project. We, have, uh, we are working on exciting problems with many people and uh, gives us uh, amazing opportunities to answer questions that are uh, ambitious. So I think the excitement that connects to answering the question whether or not there is life on, on a given, uh, around a given star that we can find this, uh, on the sky is pretty, uh, pretty obvious. But I wanted to start this lecture from a bit different angle. Uh, I was, uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was at a dinner party uh, sitting uh, next to a gentleman. We, we had an amazing, uh, very exciting conversation uh, about various uh, items, mainly related to the food. And um, he also showed me very proudly his new iPhone and the amazing things the iPhone can do. Uh, it, can, it can track where you are going, it can know what the uh, weather is like, etc. And if you have iPhones or other devices, you know how amazing these are. And then conversation turned to the gravitational waves, which were just announced, just discovered, basically observationally verified for the first time after a search of 40 years for these waves. A couple of weeks ago, you must have heard in the news uh, about this, a very exciting discovery. We spoke a bit about it, and the gentleman told me that it's, it's very cool, but of course it has no practical relevance whatsoever. And uh, I thought about it, and I decided to, to start this lecture with giving you a little bit of a of a context, at least give you my perspective why I think these things are actually important. So I just wanted to start with this. It's a very simple graph that just shows the motion of planets around stars. And in fact, the motion of planets is something that hundreds of years ago, scientists have begun to observe on the sky and uh, identify patterns in their motion. They realized they move differently from stars. And uh, it was driven by many sheer curiosity just to figure out why those objects behave differently, what's going on, what is nature trying to tell us. And just building on those simple observations, uh, actually it was possible to lay the foundation uh, of modern physics. In particular, uh, following the motion of planets, it was possible to deduce the laws of motion. Newton uh, uh, did that work, and also identifying gravity, describe it and provide a mathematical prescription for that. That's essential for today for many of the technologies. We wouldn't have airplanes, cars, or skyscrapers if we wouldn't have the basic laws of motion understood. And that comes from a simple observation, something that n people who observe the planets never foresaw that those are going to lead to cars or machines with which you can fly in the sky. Another example, when Herschel split uh, sunlight with a a glass prism uh, which uh, split the light into a rainbow and he put just thermometers on different locations and he realized that the sunlight, even if it's invisible beyond the violet, um, can actually heat uh, the thermometer and also red, uh, beyond the red. And so that was the discovery of infrared and ultraviolet light. It was the discovery uh, of the spectrum of electromagnetic uh, radiation that is today enabling so many technologies that we are using every day. It was again just driven by curiosity to try to understand something we, we didn't figure out before. Again, just playing, if you like, with magnets, uh, compasses, and current going through uh, copper wires led uh, to Maxwell's theory of electromagnetism that is the foundation of pretty much all the technology we have today from radio waves, Wi-Fi in the iPhone, uh, the cell phones, microwave ones, they all use that technology that comes from those uh, principles. People worked on those, initially never foresaw these applications, but they followed. Or uh, just the initially entertaining idea that you can actually take a photograph of your hand just by placing it uh, between a photographic plate and a radioactive uh, or certain types of minerals which turn out to be radioactive. These were some of the first images, the discovery of X-rays, and the understanding of what actually drives X-rays, what drives little particles to fall apart, to decay, to uh, decay into other uh, nu uh, nuclei atoms that we can see, 
Uh, this, of course, led also to nuclear energy, uh, nuclear power, fusion, and fission. It led to a whole range of medical devices that we use uh, in everyday life. They fundamentally impacted the quality of our life. And yes, going back to gravitational wave, which are again an example of something we may think will never have anything to do with your life. Gravitational waves are a direct evidence uh, for the, the general relativity that Einstein described. And that general relativity is built in, in your iPhone. It is used in your GPS, because without uh, general relativity, your GPS would not be accurate enough that you could navigate by. So there are very direct connections uh, long-term connections. And one interesting thing uh, is that what I would point out, that many of the greatest advances that changed our quality of life, that extended uh, the lifespan of people, of, uh, that improved conditions, for us come from a deeper understanding of nature. We find something strange and we try to explain it. We often don't realize where that is going to lead us, but it changes our life uh, all the time. So this is um, why I think it's important to explore and understand things that we don't uh, understand today, uh, because it, in addition to satisfying our curiosity, it is changing our life. So what are the big, next big challenges today? So one of the frontiers that uh, NASA and many other funding agencies realized uh, is just uh, a system in which we live Earth. Understanding Earth is something that was truly beyond science until now. We are now in a position that we can deal in many ways with a system as complex as Earth is, which includes climate, it includes oceans, it includes continents, and very importantly, it includes life. Understanding the planet we live in is obviously very important for us as a species. One of the things we understood in the next, in the last few decades, and sometimes only just the last uh, one or two decades, uh, is how much Earth is changing. On the long term, if you look back at climate records, we have uh, clear evidence for huge temperature swings uh, in Earth's climate. I'm not speaking about ice ages. Ice ages are nothing. I'm speaking about snowblowers episodes, global glaciations, where the equator is covered in kilometers of ice. Okay? These episodes happened on Earth, and they were followed by a rapid turnover to a hothouse in which there was no ice remaining in the planet, temperatures were soaring, and then the planet plunged back again in snowball Earth episodes. This oscillation happened multiple times. We have, this is relatively new result uh, from the past 15, 20 years. We are now understanding how sensitive the system in which we live to changes uh, that are introduced into it. There are many cycles, feedback cycles, that amplify or weaken the changes, uh, and we are just beginning to understand it. A very important component in Earth is life. Life, since it exists in Earth, has transformed the planet uh, very significantly. It has fundamentally impacted the atmosphere. It has changed its climate. Uh, it has changed uh, the way uh, the uh, atmosphere the ocean and the continents are coupled together. Some say that the Earth, Earth's life is regulating Earth to keep it habitable. Maybe, maybe not. We definitely know that uh, it plays a very important role uh, in many ways in setting the climate. So a big question that we want to understand and we need to understand uh, is how Earth works as a planet, as a system, uh, in which a planet and the biosphere uh, are integrated together. And uh, in this uh, endeavor, it's very uh, important to place Earth in a context of other planets. And that basically coincides uh, also with, with the question that drives many of us, whether or, is, whether or not there is life on other planets. Are there other Earth-like planets that look just like ours in which life could change the planet? or whether there are other planets that have been transformed by life in different ways. How frequent is life? On which planets is there life? How is the bio, uh, biochemistry and the properties of life or the evolution differs from ours? So these questions, even if partially answered, uh, will provide uh, a level of understanding in the Earth system and also in our place in the universe that we uh, 
uh, we currently don't have and will be transformative. And we can think that Earth is very unique, and in many ways it is, at least in the solar system, but it's not often realized that we actually have a twin, Venus. So Venus um, has started out very much like Earth. It has a very similar mass. It had a very similar composition. It's in a very similar location in the solar system. Yet things didn't go very well for Venus, as we know. Uh, it has an atmosphere that's entirely or almost entirely made of carbon dioxide. Uh, it has a pressure that's 93 times higher than the pressure on Earth and the surface. So that's about, if you would go roughly about a kilometer in depth in the uh, ocean, there's the same pressure, and that's coming from carbon dioxide that's sitting on top uh, of this planet. It has no water left, and the carbon dioxide is extremely good in trapping solar irradiation, providing soaring temperatures on the surface that are able to melt uh, lead uh, on the surface. So not a place to buy a house, <laughs> but a place to learn from. So what went wrong with Venus? We know that Venus was very similar to Earth, and in fact, probably in the early solar system, Venus was more Earth-like than the young Earth was. So we have now models developed that explain what happened with Venus, that uh, because of its proximity to the sun, uh, water could uh, ex um, escape was exposed to more uh, solar radiation and could escape to space, leaving the planet without water, which led to stopping plate tectonics and eventually led uh, to the accumulation of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Relatively small differences added up in a completely different evolutionary path that made uh, this planet completely and permanently uninhabitable. We have another uh, interesting example in the solar system, Mars. We know a lot about Mars. Mars is a much easier target to get to uh, than Venus. We can send their robots without uh, having uh, them melt. So it's much more popular with space agencies. Um, we know quite a bit about Mars. It's a much smaller planet than Earth is. Again, in the young solar system, we have evidence that it, had, it was much more favorable for life. Uh, Mars very likely had an ocean for at least some period uh, during its uh, early um, evolution. Uh, liquid water, thicker atmosphere. It was a quite pleasant place uh, to live. Uh, again, Mars has lost its ability. Uh, we believe that the primary reason that it basically evolved very differently from Earth and became uh, such a uh, cold and waterless dry uh, planet was that uh, being a much smaller planet than Earth, it lost its internal heat at a much faster rate, leading uh, its geologic activities to stop. And losing basically uh, the geological activity, uh, it lost most of its magnetic field. Magnetic field is very good if you are a planet. It protects your atmosphere from solar particles uh, that are highly charged, very energetic, that can strip away your atmosphere. So we can today witness how the remainder of the Martian atmosphere is escaping because of the solar wind. We can see how the hydrogen atoms that are stripped from water molecules are leaving the system and are never coming back. So water, uh, Mars has lost a lot, not all of it, but a lot of its water. It lost geological activity. It lost uh, most of its potential uh, to become a uh, habitable planet. So it's interesting to place the Earth, Venus, and Mars uh, in this chart in the solar system. But uh, this green uh, zone shows here is what we call the habitable zone. The habitable zone is a relatively simple idea. It tells you that uh, according to our calculations, if we take Earth and we move it closer to the sun or farther away from the sun, uh, which is the zone in which Earth will be able to compensate for the changes in irradiation and still maintain liquid water on its surface. So this is, in other words, this is the zone in which if we find there are other stars, for example, we find planets that are roughly the size of Earth and maybe function the same way as a system, we would expect them to be very similar to Earth. This is a place where we would look for life, too. 
because we want to look for places that look like Earth and are under conditions that are similar to Earth. As you see, Venus is just inside uh, the habitable zone. It's in a location where it was receiving too much sunlight. Uh, and that small change, just being slightly outside, led to a very different evolutionary path. Uh, Mars is in the habitable zone, but it's a much smaller planet than uh, Earth, so initially it was habitable, but it lost its uh, uh, ability to um, sustain liquid water stably on its surface for extended periods of time. So one big question uh, that we were all facing um, was whether or not Earth-sized planets and other planets in general uh, exist around other stars. And when I started my studies at the university, I remember in one lecture they told us we will never really be able to figure this question out. It's essentially impossible to answer. That's because planets are so much smaller than stars, and they are so much fainter. Take Earth and the Sun's example. Uh, Earth in reflected light is about a billion times fainter than the Sun. Okay? Not only that, it falls very, very close to it if you look at it from very far away. So it's, it's almost impossible but not completely. So I didn't realize, but when I was told that it's impossible to do, people have been working on it. In fact, they have been working on it for a relatively long period of time. So one person that I wanted to highlight is Bill Boruki. And uh, Bill Boruki joined uh, NASA early on at the age uh, of the Apollo program. He was working on the heat shields for the landing, uh, the uh, return capsule for the astronauts. And after the Apollo program, he at the NASA Ames Research Center, he came across an idea that was published but buried in the literature. Uh, and the idea was a very wild measurement. It said that there is a way to detect planets around other stars, uh, something that people haven't thought about. And the, this method, which now we call the transit method, uh, is fundamentally a very simple idea. It, it relies on the fact that if I take uh, planets, around stars and orbits that are randomly oriented, there will be always, in a large enough sample, stars in which the orbit of the planet will be exactly in the same plane in which I'm observing the star. So that means that from time to time, the planet, during its orbit, will come between me and the star. Okay? So when that happens, uh, we may not be able to take a picture like this, but when this transit event occurs, uh, we will see that part of the star's disk is covered, so the brightness that we observe this star uh, uh, to be will dim. Okay? If we measure a as a function of time, we measure the brightness, we'll be able to see that the planet passed in front, and we will know that uh, uh, we can determine the orbit of that planet from measuring two transits, for example. So Will Baruch is, uh, and his team from NASA Ames uh, worked on this idea and proposed it. Um, they began to work on it in the 80s and proposed it first in 1990. And very shortly after, it, I assume it took about a year to write a proposal, uh, it was rejected on the basis that nobody has ever done a measurement nearly as sensitive as what they required. So they went back to the drawing board and they came up with a system that they bought it on a telescope that could demonstrate that on one star they could get much better accuracy than what was possible before. They were not even close to measuring planets with that system, but it was a demonstration uh, that uh, supported the idea that at least this, uh, this proposal should be considered. So after two years, they wrote another proposal. These are hundreds of pages, typically. They submitted to NASA, and shortly after, they were rejected again. They were rejected because people were uh, wondering whether the telescope would not be shaking too much to make the measurement possible. So they went back to and created uh, a mock telescope that they were shaking, and they could still do the measurements. So they wrote the proposal again, they submitted it, and it was rejected again. <laughs> this time the review panel was worried that high-energy particles hitting the detector may fool the observation. So they demonstrated that that's not the case. And eventually, after about 14 years of work, they satisfied all the reviewers, and the Kepler Space Telescope was born. Kepler, which is what you see here, was launched in 2009, 
Uh, I met Bill Boruki in 2007 when we, um, I was helping to select scientists who were to be working uh, on the Kepler uh, mission. Um, and uh, it was a really exciting time. By that time, there were other methods, indirect methods primarily, that could detect extrasolar planets, but nothing that was sensitive enough to answer questions, the very simple question, how frequent are planets like Earth? So Kepler was an incredible success, and I'm sure you have uh, heard about uh, Kepler. There are just so many discoveries that uh, are due to this mission. And I'm not going even to uh, detail uh, all the exciting discoveries. I just show you this uh, animation, which is pretty cool. This shows just some of the exoplanetary systems Kepler have found. Time is going here in days. And you can see how the little planets go around. Most of these little planets are much larger than Earth, but there are some, the really ones, that are actually as small as Earth or even smaller. Many of these systems that you see here are much more packed, compact, than the solar system is. Some of these planets orbit their stars in just a few days. We don't have any examples like that in the solar system, so that was one of the many exciting discoveries that uh, Kepler was bringing. But for many of us, the most important result that emerged from Kepler was a very simple one. The finding that planets with the sizes very small, as small as Earth, are very, very common. We could have found, as far as we knew, we could have found the opposite result. We may have found that Earth-sized planets are extremely rare in the galaxy, but instead we found that almost every star, on average, will have one or more, and many of them will be in the same zone, the same distance, relative distance from their uh, host stars as Earth is. In other words, in the solar system, uh, in the habitable zone. So Bill Boruki became a hero. Uh, he retired last year from NASA after 50 years of service, but the Kepler mission continues to provide exciting discoveries. And it really set the stage for the next big step. Now we know that Earth-sized planets are very, very common. Now, the next obvious thing to do, or the big challenge, is to go and inspect those planets and figure out whether they are really Earth-like and whether they have life. So, can we do this? The answer is yes. Many of us are involved uh, in design and uh, uh, science cases for large space telescopes that will be capable to study planets in the habitable zone. These space telescopes, they have they come in different shapes until they actually get approved. So may, you may have seen different designs. The designs are uh, just developing as people are playing with different ideas. Uh, but over the next uh, four to five years, various groups uh, are developing uh, design studies and science cases for a very large space telescope that NASA uh, will uh, likely fund. Um, it is uh, very likely that the main driver behind that mission uh, will be the goal to find life on other stars. So it's a very fundamental and very exciting goal. Now, how could we do that? The, finding life is pretty difficult. One way we could go about this is to take an observation, not only an image, but then split the light from the planet, just like Herschel did with the glass prism, split the light into colors, uh, and basically get a spectrum. So in here, each uh, bin has a different color or different wavelengths. And um, in a spectrum like this, we can see structures, these lines and bands. They are in the spectrum, because in this case, this is the spectrum of Earth. Uh, these bands exist because molecules in our atmosphere, such as water, oxygen, or ozone, can interact with certain color light, certain wavelength light, but not with others. So when they can interact, we can see a deviation in the spectrum, and when they cannot, then uh, we don't see a change. So here you see an actual uh, explanation. You can see that this feature corresponds to ozone, uh, this corresponds to uh, molecular oxygen, this corresponds to water, uh, etc. So by taking a, an image and then splitting the light, we can actually deduce what is the composition of Earth's atmosphere. And because oxygen is made by life, and life only uh, for Earth, we can deduce that life is not only existing on the planet, but it has managed to change 
the whole atmosphere. Okay? So from a relatively simple uh, observation. So can we build a telescope like this? Uh, what do we need? Um, so we need to figure out how to do this technically. And there, people have been working on this. This is one of the most exciting problems out there. And there was a lot of effort invested, and we have now multiple pathways uh, from the technology side that can give us what we need. Uh, so, but to build a telescope like this, there are some other questions we need to decide. The challenge to actually image an Earth-like planet, and especially if we want to get dozens of them, because we don't know what fraction of them may truly have life, uh, that's going to be very difficult to do. We can do it, but it's going to be difficult. In fact, uh, it's going to work a bit differently. In some ways, it will be reverse astronomy compared to modern astronomy. In modern astronomy, I can build a telescope and look basically all over the sky, find amazing things, many things I didn't expect before. But when we are speaking about uh, finding life, the measurement is so difficult, it's so much on the edge of what we can do, that we actually have to build a telescope for specific targets. If I want different targets, I want to target stars that are very close to the sun, I can get away with a smaller telescope. But if I decide that I need only particular stars, say exact analogs of the sun, I will need to look further in space, and I will need a much bigger telescope. So these are not small decisions. These are billion-dollar decisions, and these are uh, making a huge difference uh, in the mission. So questions that we need to answer now and in the next years to pick the right design and maybe spare a few billion uh, are basically which targets we want to look at. And how many planets do we need to survey? Are we OK with just building a telescope for three Earths? Or we would want to do 30? Or maybe we would want to do 100? What sort of statistics we want? And how far are our targets? Are we just looking in the closest stars, the closest three, five, or the closest 100? That translates to a big difference. So these, to answer these questions, we have to uh, think a little bit about uh, the information we can use to answer them and, and the options we have. So in terms of targets, we look up the sky. This image shows the Milky Way from Arizona, uh, spectacular. and you know that the Milky Way is, uh, is, we are really part of a disk galaxy, and this is the band of the Milky Way, it's just a disk galaxy as it's projected around on the sky. The Milky Way is a city of stars, uh, is made by a huge number of stars, and uh, I just wanted to kind of drive home how many stars are there, and most of these stars have uh, Earth-sized planets, uh, with the following exercise. So, this is a dark screen, what you will see appearing are stars. And I want to ask you, all of you, to count with me the stars that will appear. Just one, two, three, okay? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen. No. Very good. So. You are great. 16 stars. Now imagine that you were counting the stars like this, and you would do that out in the sky. Say, I hire you to count the stars in the Milky Way. <laughs> the same rate, but I'm a tough boss. I give you no breaks, no bathroom breaks, no sleeping. 24 hours counting one star every second. It would take you 300 years to count the stars. Okay? So we have an amazing choice of stars. But most of them are very, very far. So we don't want to go too far because we need huge telescopes. So we want to find stars that are very close to us. We can easily reach, but still give us a good enough sample. So if we figure out which stars are more likely to have Earth-sized planets, we can do the observations uh, and the telescope. We can design a telescope in a smart way. Uh, so let's take a look about our planet. What makes our planet uh, different? What makes it special? If we were to choose, and we had an option to choose which planets we look at, what would we want in our favorite planet that we were uh, observing? So what makes Earth interesting for us? I hear water, and yes, I had that on my slide. So we have liquid water, which is very important. Life cannot exist without liquid water. We have uh, 
atmosphere, that's right. We have also geological activity, which is very important. It provides a coupling between the interior and the atmosphere. It, it allows the, an exchange which is actually stabilizing the climate, and it's, uh, it's a great thing to have if you buy a planet. We also have life. I already mentioned that life is very important. It is impacting fundamentally the atmosphere, uh, the planet, the climate, and we want to understand it by comparing it to other planets and life uh, on it. So we would want these components. And um, to figure out what planets are more likely uh, to have uh, these uh, properties, let's consider what it takes to build a planet. Okay? So this is the night sky. Uh, and if you have good eyes, you may be able to spot the Orion constellation. Now, we are not born to be astronomers, or pupils are tiny. The little black part in your eyes that really is a hole that allows light to go through is very small. So it would be so much better if we had eyes as large as dinner plates. It would be much more fun. The sky would look different. We would see much more structure, like here. We would see all this nebulosity and gas that's emitting around the, around the Orion constellation. Okay? Would be much better. Fortunately, we also build telescopes, so we can actually look into the heart of the Orion constellation in the Orion Nebula, and we can explore what's there. These are images from the Hubble Space Telescope and the Mosaic. What you see here is a region that you can actually see with your naked eye, which is not, not as well, of course, where young stars are forming. And there are several thousand stars here, uh, and most of them are very young by stars standard, a few million years. Some of them are less than a million. That's a real baby if you speak about stars. Uh, we can take a look with Hubble uh, on, on the inner part, and we can zoom in to see some of these stars. And let me show you. This is pretty cool. What you see around many of these young stars is that they are not just little tiny naked baby stars, but in fact, they are surrounded by what you may think is a cocoon, but if at closer inspection, you will see that they are surrounded by dark disks. These dark disks are made of gas and dust mixed together, and in fact, the stars themselves form from this material. When the material uh, is, uh, that's present in the nebula, can, it cannot directly fall onto the star, but it will go through these disks and accrete to the star, building up the star, but it is an imperfect process. Some of the material will be left over, the unlucky bits. We are the unlucky bits at the end. These unlucky bits, the leftover, is going to form planets. Okay? So we want to understand this process if we are to understand how Earth formed and what made it uh, a good planet to live in. So this is uh, just a cool uh, simulation that shows you these disks, um, how we imagine them, how they are made of dust and gas that's slowly uh, turning, orbiting the star. And within, there are these solid particles, some only the size of cigarette smoke particles, some much larger. In the colder outer part of the disk, when temperatures are low, ice coating can uh, go, uh, grow on the grains, so these could be ice-rich grains, while in the interior they would be dry grains. When they hit each other and they collide, they will merge and form larger and larger particles. Okay? So eventually we can form pretty large particles through various processes from these original tiny ones, and then they can sm smash into each other. So it's a very uh, happy system initially, lots of action. Everything is smashing and everything merging, destroying things. So Earth and other planets did form through these collisions. And uh, in fact, uh, we know quite a bit about Earth's last collision. If you want to see and have to look at the last collision, the evidence of the last collision, you don't need to look far. The moon itself is leftover material from the last catastrophic collision the Earth has suffered. Okay? Uh, about 30 to 100 million years after the beginning of the solar system formation, uh, Earth was hit by uh, a Mars-sized um, uh, impactor, and which stripped away almost all the rocks, mantle, and uh, crust from the surface, formed a giant cloud around uh, the Earth, and uh, eventually most of it accreted back to Earth.
So, so the moon is basically a leftover from this accretion process. That's why when we wanted to figure out when the Earth formed, we couldn't find old enough rocks on Earth because they were destroyed by the geologic processing. We went to the moon and we dated the moon, so we figured out when the Earth formed. So, uh, so that's pretty cool. Now, there is, however, one, we, and we have a pretty good understanding on a fundamental level on how we assemble uh, pieces of rocks into planets, okay, through these collisions. But there's some, some interesting catch here. So if I take an inventory of Earth, a rough inventory, uh, I would find that by mass, 31% is in the core. Okay, that's no big surprise there. Iron and uh, nickel with some other component. 63% of the mass uh, is in silicates, it's in rocks. Okay, and we all agree that Earth is an ocean planet, so there must be a lot of water, right? No, not quite. So water on Earth corresponds to about 0.3%. Okay? Without that, we wouldn't be here. And it gets worse. If you think about carbon, which we need, is 0.05%. Nitrogen, which we also need, think about RNA or DNA, and stands for nitrogen there, uh, that's about 100 to 200 times less than carbon. Okay? So these are elements that are pretty common in the universe, but when we build the planets, these elements, water, carbon, and some of the others, they just don't quite make it there. But we need them for life. So imagine, Earth could easily have had less or more water, right? Uh, it's a pretty small fraction. So we want to understand uh, really not only how the rocks get there, but how we get what we call the volatiles and the organics. And so the, the difficulties with these elements, for example, take water, is that I showed you the habitable zone. If I form a planet that I then will have water or stable on its surface as a liquid later on, it has to be warm enough. But early on, in initial stages, the sun, when it's still accreting, will be brighter and everything will be hotter. And it can actually evaporate all the uh, water from those grains, leaving the inner part dry. So we need somehow to deliver the water uh, after it was dried out. And so there are different ideas different mechanisms, and we are exploring them. One of them is to use icy bodies later, such as comets. Comets are left over from the early solar system. They have a lot of ice in them. They are far away where temperatures are cold, but sometimes they come in, and they may have come in at a much higher rate early on, and they would have been good vehicles to deliver water. There were also other bodies in the solar system. Some of them are still there. Uh, there used to be a much higher number of asteroids, small objects, uh, hundreds of kilometers in diameter and smaller than that, and many of them, uh, the ones further out from the sun, may have below the dust cover significant amount of ice. So these are little bodies that can move around in a planetary system and carry water. So I basically described you the big challenge we are facing, understanding a system, an Earth system in many ways, its formation and how it links and how is it related to other uh, um, um, uh, planets. So NASA has formed uh, the NEXUS program. I mentioned this already. NEXUS stands for NEXUS for Exoplanet System Science. Okay? Um, I would just call it NEXUS. And this was launched last year. Sorry, it's, there's some jumping here. It was formed last year. Uh, when NASA formed this new coalition. It includes 17 teams. Our team uh, is one of the two largest ones. Um, we have a $6 million budget over five years to study a particular problem that see, was seen as central uh, in NASA's uh, goal to study exoplanets on a system level. Okay? So our team is called Earth in other solar systems, and the question we are after is how do we form habitable zone planets, so the dry distance from the sun, that have the same size as Earth, uh, and they have biocritical ingredients, volatiles and organics. And if we can answer this question, we can also answer which are better stars, as targets, and which are worse. So Nexus has a lot of other components, Earth's interior, Earth's climate and climate history, plant formation, etc. So we are interfacing with them. So in the next two talks, you will get more details about what Nexus is doing and what we have done, done until now. I just wanted to give you some highlights and show a little bit the overall science goals. 
So we have three sets of questions, one, two, and three. The first one uh, is exploring the history and or, uh, origin of organics and volatiles in the solar system. So take the solar system, take Earth. Where do we have our water, carbon, nitrogen uh, from? How it was delivered? So we use studies of meteorites, studies of pre-planetary material, pre-stellar materials, and uh, combine large inventory of organics and volatiles. In the second set of projects, we are exploring what happens with this material once it enters the disk. It will be processed somewhat. Can it be completely disrupted, or will some of it make it through, or maybe all of it may make it through? So we explore what happens with these disks. How are these disks then transformed into planets? And then in the last set of questions, we are, we are exploring when we are forming planets in the form, planet forming uh, process, how can we deliver these volatiles and organics to forming planets? Uh, so together, these three will answer the big question we set out to answer. And then we are working with the broader Nexus collaboration with the other teams to put this together with plant evolution models, atmosphere evolution models, etc., so that we can converge on a target list and set of targets that we think are the best shot at finding Earth-like planets, if that's our goal, or uh, getting the best sample on which we can do statistics. So I wanted to show you a couple of people behind uh, Nexus or, um, and, or EOS node. Uh, I'm the PI, the, that's the jargon for the principal investigator or the lead or the director for the program. Uh, my colleague, uh, Professor Thomas Ziga, uh, is a cosmochemist. He's uh, world expert on meteorites and using uh, state-of-the-art analytical techniques with microscopes to explore fine structures on meteorites. Uh, and uh, he's also an avid cyclist, uh, as you he see here. Uh, he's helping me manage the program. Uh, Professor Lucy Zuris is a chemist astronomer. Um, she is leading studies using giant radio telescopes, uh, inventorying complex organics in space, surprisingly complex molecules that form there, and studying also comets um, and uh, uh, pre-stellar material. So she is leading our team one. Uh, Ilaria Pascucci. Uh, is a professor in the Lunar and Planetary Laboratory. Um, she is leading our team two. And um, Professor Fred Chesla is a professor in the University of Chicago. He's uh, a theoretical cosmochemist. He's leading our team three. So this is a bit more detailed flowchart of what we are doing. I will not go through the details, just remind you that in team one, we are basically exploring how we start our system, what are the starting blocks or building blocks that we start with, uh, and then here we are exploring what happens with the disks, how the disks are evolving in planetary systems, and here we are exploring uh, how these planets that form uh, inherit their volatiles and organics. And in addition to all the research that we are doing, every single piece here is cutting edge. Um, the really exciting thing about EOS is that because of the size of our program, which is 20 to 30 times larger than a typical grant, we, can, we are not only working on small focused problems, but we can ask a question that's really grand that couldn't be answered before by collecting many of these pieces together and organizing them. So that's what we are doing. One of the specific outputs that we will create uh, is what we call the Genesis database. And the Genesis database will be a culmination of these uh, studies where we create a large set, hundreds of planetary systems that we form, and uh, we follow the individual planets' formation pathways, composition, uh, and we will be able to compare those to actual planetary systems. So we, a lot of our work involves individual research and exp uh, exploration, but we spend a lot of time meeting to figure out how to work with our colleagues, both here in EOS, this was one of our first group meetings, uh, and uh, in various settings, trying to put together the pieces. Uh, it's often the first time when some of us astronomers, for example, are speaking to cosmochemists, or speaking to material scientists and engineers, or a uh, group is inter, uh, interdisciplinary to answer these questions, so this is quite uh, interesting. I just want to show you a few cool discoveries. We are in the first year. We already have uh, published 
uh, uh, 12 refereed papers, so it's, they are very productive. Uh, but I just want to show you some highlights, and you will hear more about the science in the next two talks. So one of our cool results, uh, it was a, in the press a few months ago, Kevin Wagner, who is a first-year graduate student, uh, has discovered uh, a disc with two spiral arms. There are very few of these known. This is the prettiest one, of course. And uh, it's a very exciting system where very likely planets are forming in, in the interior, and we can see this giant spiral arm uh, coming out, which provides us information about the plant formation stages and processes. This is another study. This one uh, I led. <clears throat> this is a, a somewhat older system in which we were able to directly image a giant planet. You can see the planet, this is 2003 and 2009. You can see that the planet is orbiting around the star. And not only it has this really cool direct image planet, we can actually see a giant dust disk in which this planet is orbiting. The dust is produced from collisions uh, of smaller bodies and larger bodies. And we can see and uh, study uh, how the planet and the disk interact. So we can see these stages when the planetary material is exchanged. In this study, we used the Hubble Space Telescope, and we were able to get uh, much closer in, get sharper images uh, of the disk than previously. We covered the star uh, with a mask so we could see the fainter stuff around it. Um, in another study led by Heis Mulders, who is a postdoc <coughs> with EOS, he studied how frequently are there planets, small planets, Earth-sized and a bit larger, around different types of stars, uh, as a function of distance. So AU is the astronomical unit. 1.0 would be where Earth is, and this is anything closer than Earth. The cool thing here is that he used the Kepler data to measure the frequency as a function of the mass of the star. So the M stars are the little red dwarfs, and the F stars are more massive stars than the Sun. And the really exciting thing is that you would expect that bigger stars will have more planets, and you would be wrong. We were all wrong. The little red dwarfs, they more frequently have planets, and sometimes a factor of three more frequent uh, in, in forming planets than uh, the more massive stars. So this is very important if for selecting targets. We also have developed a set of models that trace the formation of planets. What you see here is we start objects here. This is four uh, simulations that are essentially identical. Uh, the color coding corresponds to how much water they have. Anything close in is red because it's dry. Beyond, beyond this line, snow line, water can freeze out, so these have a lot of water. And we just model how these little and small bodies uh, merge, hit each other and merge. And so what you see is pretty cool. Uh, in the inner part, these planets that are forming are eating up the small objects very fast. Further out, it, it takes a bit longer. And initially, everything was red, but you see the colors change. The colors change because some of this material from the outer part, the smaller bodies, uh, they make their way in the interior and get accreted by planets. So Earth is somewhere here. And as you see, we are able to form some planets with sizes similar to Earth with the same uh, amount of water. And we already formed a quite a number of systems. So in closing, I just wanted to mention a few ways you can follow us and also uh, join uh, us. We are looking in many ways to work with not only with uh, the astronomical community but the broader community at the UA and in Tucson too and there are ways also you can follow us and join. We are organizing a dinner, others dinner, so if you are interested in meeting with us and uh, dining with us and uh, chatting about our work then you can find flyers in the back or in the front or check out our website. I should point out that we have the website, which is pretty cool. We have even a Twitter feed and a, a Facebook. You can follow uh, events, uh, various news items uh, on our website. And so I wanted to return to the iPhone. And I, I mentioned to you that uh, the work we are doing uh, is very exciting in an, from an intellectual standpoint. Uh, and I also believe that by understanding complex systems, like Earth and placing it in a context, in a, a galactic context, uh, we will change our life and fundamentally impact uh, the society uh, and humanity on a longer term. So I think it's not only an exciting project, but it's also something uh, that will allow us to change our future. Thank you.
Thank you very much, Daniel. We do have time for some questions from the audience. If you would please speak into the microphone. Yeah, okay, so I understand that you can see these planets going in front of the uh, stars. How do you determine, number one, how many planets there are in the solar system? It's not the same one going around, it's different ones. I guess they're different sizes. And the other thing is, how do you determine how far they are from that uh, star so you know that they're in the life zone rather than just... Great questions. So, um, the, so the first question is, uh, what can, in a sense, what can we learn about these planets, how we figure out how many planets we see, how many planets are there. Very important part of it, how many planets we don't see, right? Because we only see the planets that happen to pass in front. And so there are some really cool things we can measure in a transiting system like that. The primary thing we can measure is the period. So we can figure out that that planet passes, say every four days it passes in front of the star. Okay, so the period will tell us uh, all of these transits are very strictly periodic. So if I see periods every four days, I will know that that's one planet. If I see uh, two systems, two planets, one could have a period of four days, the other could have a period of 30 days, I would be able to uh, separate those. Uh. Then I can also measure the size of the planet, right? Because uh, if you imagine just a disk, uh, if I put in front of a disk, or you can imagine uh, a ball, uh, if I put a smaller ball or a larger ball in front, I will cover different fraction of the disk. So it means if I put a larger planet in front of my star, the dimming will be greater. Uh, and if I put a smaller planet, the dimming will be smaller. So if I measure the dimming, I know what fractional size of the, planet, uh, of the star is covered by the planet. If I know the size of the star, and we know quite a bit about stars, then I can figure out how large is the planet. So to give you a, uh, an example, uh, for example, Jupiter would introduce a dim of 1%. So that would tell me that uh, that planet has covered 1% of the disk of the star, and so I could figure out that the radius is actually 10%, just using basic geometry. So that's basically, so that's how we can figure out the size of the planet. We can figure out their period, orbital periods. And then we, we turn to Kepler. So Kepler has worked out laws of planetary motions that relate the separation, the distance, the orbital radius uh, to the period. So we can use Kepler's laws to figure out how far they are. So that works quite well. We can figure out how far the planets are. And then we can see that given the brightness of that star, uh, is that in the habitable zone or is that outside the habitable zone? Now, the other part of your question is, that's where it gets more tricky. How do we figure out how many planets are there, right? Because I mentioned that you really see this transit happen only if the planet is just uh, passing between us and the star. There will be many, many planets that don't pass there. So we will never see the star change even though they have many planets. And so fortunately, uh, if we have a large enough statistics from the planets we detect, we can actually figure out, using relatively simple geometry, how many other planets we missed. Uh, and so that's where actually most of the work went in the Kepler mission, uh, years of work validating between different teams. And for the inner parts, for the short period planets, we can really correct very well for that uh, non, uh, that selection bias, if you like. And so we could derive the occurrence rates, the intrinsic frequency of planets quite uh, accurately. We have a question up here. Yeah. You're currently looking for life as we know it. It strikes me as being at least yeah. theoretically possible there would be other forms of life uh, that that's right, we're yeah. not aware of at this point. That's right. So that, that's also a very good question. So, uh, you know, you may think just in the solar system, right? We have, I mentioned, Mars and Venus as examples, but you hear a lot about Europa, for example, or some of the icy moons, which have liquid water under the ice uh, layer, and they are interesting targets for searching for life. Yet in our search for extrasolar life, we will not look for those objects, and there are, uh, there are two reasons for that. First of all is what you mentioned, we really have to look for life that uh, is somewhat similar to Earth's life, so we can interpret what we see. Um, it can be very difficult to, 
even now, right? We don't, we don't even have a working definition for life. We cannot, in, right, in Star Trek they have the tricoder device that can detect life remotely. <laughs> we don't even have a definition. We don't know where life really begins and where it ends. Whether a virus, should a virus be living or not? And, so, and there are other examples of that. So it is very difficult to look for something that you don't even know how to define or what would be a signature. So instead, what we are going to look for is something that, uh, and not directly life itself, but life's impact on the planet. So in case of Earth, life has changed the atmosphere, and that's a particular change that would not have occurred otherwise, and that's one that we can look for and specifically uh, decide whether or not we see it. Now, the, yes, we are going to miss potentially lots of different life forms that we could not detect. And an example of that is that life was present on this planet actually from quite early on. So we have evidence dating back to about 3.7 or maybe 4 billion years uh, back in time, so almost after the uh, formation of the planet. Yet, life only transformed the atmosphere about 2.2 uh, billion years ago, significantly. Until then, life existed, but it didn't have a major impact that we could detect easily, or at least interpret easily, um, um, in an exoplanet system. So that's one side. The other side is that if you think about, for example, Europa, that would, or Mars even, if you search for Mars, present-day life on Mars, it would be subsurface life. Subsurface is very difficult to assess, even for Mars, but for remote sensing um, endeavors, such as the one we are uh, planning for an exoplanet that's beyond reach. So we focus on the atmosphere and we focus on things that are the closest to what we know and then I'm sure we will find surprising uh, uh, signals and detections and uh, we hopefully will be able to interpret them. But we don't build the mission around an unknown. Question over here. Uh, we, we, you talked about in the lecture about uh, and I may have this wrong about Earth-sized planets. Are there any expectations that you'll find Earth-like characteristics on something like Saturn size? Something bigger? That's a good, yeah, that's a very good question. So one of the many cool things Kepler found, and many of them I didn't have time to go into, one of them was uh, the following surprise. In the solar system, we have rocky planets, and I showed you. Um, Earth and Venus, which are very similar in size, and then we have much larger planets, uh, the giant planets. But it turns out in many exoplanet systems, these are, may not be the most common type of planets. There's something that we call now super-Earths, something that's larger than Earth but smaller than the giants. And in our solar system, we don't have any of those. So in some ways, our solar system is boring. We, we don't even have a super-Earth. Uh, but in many other systems, there are super-Earths, they are really interesting for two reasons. First, they are pretty common. Second, they are easier to observe than Earth because they are bigger. So there is a very active discussion going on whether uh, should we aim for super-Earths and what would, how would Earth change if I would increase, I, if I had a dial and I would just increase the mass of Earth by a factor of two, three, or four, or five? Would we still have volcanoes? Would we still have plate tectonics? And uh, so that's very active researcher here. People have been modeling Earth for decades, and all these numbers, the mass of the planet, the radius of the planet, the irradiation, these are all hardwired into Earth models because there was never a reason to change. So now people are going back to Earth models and changing them and changing them and seeing how the system responds if we change the mass. And I'm pretty sure that the first observations we will get that will be very exciting for interior and atmospheres, they will come from super-Earths. Doctor, um, how good are we at detecting uh, the elements on a surface of an object that's not glowing like a star so we can figure out what's there? That's really the $64 question. Yeah, so um, that's a, a, among many of them. Mm -hmm. So that's a very good question. So we can, we have different ways of exploring. Um, really what we are interested in is, say, the composition, the interior composition, surface properties, atmospheric properties. So I'm also leading other projects that I didn't discuss here. They are not part of EOS, but 
uh, in which we are using the Hubble and Spitzer space telescopes uh, to actually create maps of atmospheres of giant exoplanets and uh, also uh, brown dwarfs, which are often the same mass range, but they don't have a host star. And so we, ha we developed a technique uh, to derive maps and uh, also get composition out from the gas phase. So the same technique that we are now using for these gas, gaseous planets, um, they can be used if we have a large enough telescope on, on these systems. So we will get more than just an oxygen signature. We will be able to get, if everything works well, we'll be able to get maps, continents and oceans, uh, maybe ice caps on Earth-like planets. Uh, surfaces, we will be able to get colors for the surfaces. And uh, a big question would be the, how the interior works. So we may be able to actually figure out just from the fact whether there, there are continents or not, that there is an active geology going on or not. So there will be not, uh, we will have the ability to map, we will have the ability to constrain composition and colors, and then we will have to work from that to constrain the internal uh, processes of the planet and composition. We'll take one more question down here. I think you just touched on my question. Um, you mentioned earlier about the importance of magnetic field to protect us from radiation. Is there any way to detect whether a planet would have a... Very good question, too. Um, Magnetic fields are very difficult to detect. There have been ideas how we could detect them, and some people have tried to look for magnetic fields in around very massive stars. One cool way we could detect them is aurora. So if uh, aurora borealis uh, and australis, they are uh, emerging, so they are visible uh, light uh, pattern on the sky, because charged particles from the sun, they come, they slam into the Earth's magnetosphere. Most of them get deflected and pass around the Earth, but a small fraction follows the magnetic field lines and slams into the Earth's upper atmosphere, close to the poles where the field lines enter. And so that, that kind of illumination is something we were able to see with the Hubble Space Telescope in Saturn and Jupiter. Uh, and uh, people argue that if other exoplanets may have extremely strong magnetic fields, we may be able to detect that. Even with ROSAT, we observed X-ray emission from the aurorae of nice. uh, Jupiter and Saturn. Nice. So, th yeah, that's a good way. Weak magnetic fields are probably very difficult to detect otherwise. All right. While Daniel was talking, I was possessed to go upstairs and open up the Clark telescope. If you're not familiar, we have a five-inch refractor that was built by Alvin Clark and Sons. They were the Stradivariuses of telescope makers in the 19th century. This telescope was built in 1888, okay? It's made of brass. And uh, so if you've never looked through a telescope that's 128 years old, we have it up there. I opened it up. Uh, you'll have to, and our other telescopes open. What you do is you go up just one flight of stairs in the observatory and go across the catwalk. But I'll get over there as soon as I stamp student assignments and show you where the telescope is if you want to look through the Clark, because Jupiter is sitting right next to the moon up there. So it's, it's, it's a really nice view. Um, I want to remind you our next lecture is two weeks from tonight, April the 4th, Dr. Joan Najita from the National Optical Astronomy Observatories which run Peak Observatory will give the next of the second of the three EOS lectures. Um, so we hope to see you in two weeks. We had 202 people here tonight. I was counting you all while Daniel was answering questions. I will stamp student assignments down here. The telescope is open. Let's thank Professor Apai one more time. Thank you.